This morning I'm going to be continuing on this series of Psalm 23. Uh, As I've been going through that, we have been looking at this series in a way where we have been going phrase by phrase through what I've been calling the seven scenes of Psalm 23. The, The seven statements that you find in Psalm 23 which declare in some way the action of God, what God is actively doing. So today we are up to scene number three as we've been looking through that. Remember, we've, we've looked in the last couple of weeks at those first two scenes. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. And today, up to that third scene, four short words. He restores my soul. And like other weeks where we've been using those phrases as a springboard to find some other place in Scripture that emphasizes and brings that out. It's no different today. So today, whereas in other weeks we've flipped to things like the book of Revelation or Ezekiel or 1 Kings, today we are jumping only a few pages back. I'm going to be using some words from Psalm 19 to explain that phrase we see in Psalm 23, he restores my soul. There's some similarity here because both Psalm 19 and Psalm 23 are both Psalms of David. So David wrote both of these things. And he uses that same phrase in each one. I'm going to pick up Psalm, 23, Psalm 19, beginning at verse 7. Psalm 19 is a psalm that, that declares all that God does. And it begins in the first six verses of Psalm 19. It is a declaration of how God reveals himself in his creation. How we see the wonders and the majesty and the glory of God all around us in the world by what he has created. That what we call in the church that general revelation of God around us. Then in verse 7 of Psalm 19, David shifts his focus from the general revelation of God all around us in the world to a specific focus of God specially revealing himself in Scripture, in his word. That's where we're going to pick it up, okay? Psalm 19, I am beginning at verse 7. It says this. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise and the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern our own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. That's as much as we'll read today from Psalm 19. So the, the phrase, the wording in there of God restoring our soul, I mean, it's a repeated phrase that, that you find in these words of David, and, and it translates a little bit differently. So, so David talks here about how God 
comes to us in his word, how he reveals himself. And he uses all of these different words and phrases to explain how this goes. All those ways that he talks about the word of God, right? That, that the word of the Lord is, is perfect, it's trustworthy, it's right, it's radiant, it's pure, it's firm, it's precious. All of these words of description that David gives for the word of God, for God's holy word, his scripture to us. But then David also explains all of the things that the word of God does for him, gives for him, that it gives wisdom, gives joy, gives light. All of those things that David wraps into this. But what we see in that first phrase then, that very first phrase that we read that comes in verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. It's two words in Hebrew, the two words shuv negesh, the same words that show up in Psalm 23 and the line that we read there. So first, first that, that, word, that Hebrew word negesh, which translates as either soul or life, we read it in both Psalm 19 and Psalm 23 as, as the word soul, but in the Hebrew language, it also refers to life, that those things were interchangeable, one and the same, that they thought of the soul as being life itself, the thing that God breathed into people to give them life is that Hebrew word negesh. But then the word that I really want to focus on today is, is that other word, shuv, the Hebrew word shuv, which translates into English as either restore or refresh or revive. Literally, in Hebrew, the word means turn around, return. So, so you find other examples in the Old Testament where the word shuv is translated as repent because it means that same thing. You kind of get what the idea is behind this word, what, what it's after here. So David uses this phrase, shuv negesh, restore my soul, refresh my life, revive me again, turn my life around, is what he's after, is what he's saying. That's what David is asking. God, turn my life around around, because only you can do that. You know, in, in Psalm 23, as we read that and read those phrases, where we read those words of David, restore my soul. Maybe we have different ideas or thoughts of what that means, how that works. How is it that God restores our souls, right? How do we see evidence of that in our lives? And, and maybe if I were to ask everyone here, for 50 different people I ask, I may get 50 different answers for examples of, well, here's how that works in my life. Here's how I see God restoring my soul, reviving my life. But in Psalm 19, David has a little more focus, doesn't he? He's a little more focused in how he talks about that because he's talking about Scripture, about the Word of God, the law of God. There is the thing through which God restores, revives him. Let's think a little bit more about how that comes together, about how that works in our lives. You know, we have a lot of technology in our world today and, and technology that I think maybe sometimes we take for granted because when it works, we just take for granted that it works. But, but when it doesn't work, 
that's when things become frustrating, right? I mean, if, if you've got a, a cell phone or a computer, I mean, when, when my cell phone is on and I've got good signal strength so that calls easily come in and go out and all of the apps launch and run smoothly and, and everything does what it's supposed to, I guess I don't think twice about that because that's what I expect it to do. But when those things don't work, when something goes wrong, right? When, when my phone freezes and the apps won't launch and I can't, can't do what I need to do on that, or when the battery goes from 100% fully charged to 10% in like an hour, you know something's not right. Something got wrong there. Computers are like that too, right? When your computer works fine, it's all good. But, but when something goes wrong and it's frustrating, then, then you know something has to be fixed or put right again. We have that in so many different ways in the technology that we have in the world in which we live. But then, the question of what you do, see, I'm, I'm not necessarily the technology expert. I, I happen to be the one in my house who maybe takes it out of the box and plugs it in the wall and turns it on. So when something goes wrong, people ask me in my house, Dad, the Wi-Fi is down. How do we fix it? Or, Dad, there's no sound coming from the TV. How do we fix that? Well, I'm I'm not necessarily the technology expert, but I guess I've done enough looking at tech support or, you know, the the Q&A section or watch a YouTube video to know that quite often, the very first thing that's always recommended is reboot. Have you tried turning it off and turning it back on again? Have you tried just simply powering it down and turning it back on? Maybe unplugging it from the wall, plugging it back in. Have you tried a reboot? I mean, that, that's a technology term that we use now that I don't think existed back in the time of David. So David lived in a world in which he uses these biblical images of shepherding and sheep because that was the common thing around him. But I wonder if David lived today, if David was in our world, in our time, experiencing life as we have it now, I, I wonder if he would give it maybe the image that fits something more in our world today. Because I think I can make the case here that in all of these words that we use to describe shuv, restore, refresh, revive, I think in today's world we could add reboot to that list. Because it follows the same kind of meaning. That every once in a while, we find ourselves in a place where we just need to turn around and get it back going again. That we need that kind of a refresh. So maybe you've had that experience with some technology where you've had to do that, restart it up again. Maybe you've had that experience where maybe things get so messed up that you have to push that little button that says restore to factory settings, right? Sometimes uh, that's the button that's in the back that maybe you need a special tool to press because you don't want to press that one accidentally because it wipes out all the settings, right? That's the one on your, on your computer or on your phone where if you go to that reset, it asks you like 75 times, are you sure? Are you really sure, right, before you do that? Because that's drastic. If, if your technology is going so wrong that you have to do that, that's a drastic measure to reboot like that. So I think maybe David is coming to this place where he comes before God and he recognizes and he realizes my life needs a reboot and I can't do it myself. 
My life is in this place where, where only God can come and fix that. That David is making this confession in both Psalm 19 and in Psalm 23, where he says, my life needs a reboot, and God is the only one who can do that. God is the only one who can bring that. The question then, how does that work? What does that look like in your life? So what is it that looks like in your life today to know and experience that sort of a reboot, that restore that takes place when God enters our souls and does that in our lives? How does that look? A couple ways for us to consider that today. The first one, I want to get into this by reading a few words that come from Luke 18, right? So Luke 18, and and this is a story where Jesus tells this story about two different people who come into the temple to pray. This is what he says from Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all that I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up at heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Humility. Humbling. I I think there's something for us to gain in this in understanding that path that David is after about restoring and reviving our souls, what it means to be rebooted by God to come to that place before him with humility and being humble. But consider with me a little bit of how this works, okay? Because we can think about and talk about humility in many different ways. Maybe we think of humility as simply being an absence of pride, right? When when I get that pride out of my life, that pride like we saw in that story of that Pharisee who prayed, who thought he had it all together. If I get that out of my life, then, then I find my place, myself in a place of humility, of being humble before God. That would be on one side, but, but consider maybe the other extreme end of that. The extreme end of, of where maybe we think then humility is coming to this place of, well, maybe being sort of fatalistic about being worthless or a failure. I am so broken and I am so messed up that I can never do anything right. That everything I do is a failure. So you've got two extremes, right? Two ends of that. How do we think about humility, at least as we see it in Scripture, coming to us in a way that fits, that that doesn't leave us on either of those extreme ends because neither of those things fully capture what the Bible is after about humility. It's not as though humility then comes to us as this place where we have to begin thinking that everything I do is wrong. 
right? There, there's something in between those extremes, the extremes of everything I do is always perfect and right and all the time, or thinking that everything I do is completely messed up and a mistake. Rather, humility then maybe begins with, well, considering a question, asking a question, is there another perspective or point of view I have not considered? Humility begins then in saying, is there another way of looking at it? Or let me put this in a bigger picture. Humility begins by acknowledging, you know what? I am not the center of the universe. The world doesn't revolve around me. The whole thing around me that I see in life around me doesn't necessarily have to be just what I see from my point of view, how I think it should go. And maybe the way that I can take a step in that direction towards humility to get out of the world in which I think I'm always in the middle, maybe the step I can take to get out of that and towards humility is to simply ask, what is it like to see the world from somebody else's perspective, somebody else's point of view? What's it like for me to see with somebody else's eyes, to walk in somebody else's shoes, to consider how other people may think or feel or respond, to get myself out of a place where I think I'm at the center of everything, to look at the ways in which other people around me maybe see or experience. You see, that is a humility then that pulls on an attitude, an attitude which is willing to let go of my own pride, let go of my having to be right all the time, let go of my own desire to be demanding that everyone else sees things my way. That enters into a humility that engages in empathy with others, to enter into their lives, to genuinely consider what it's like to be them, to see as they do, to experience life their way, to let go of my selfish pride and make room for the thoughts and the feelings and the actions of others to be received. The Apostle Paul talks about this. A few words that come to us then from Philippians chapter 2 where we read about this. This is what Paul says about it. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. You see what... What Paul is describing there, how we're pulling that thread of humility forward to get outside of that world in which I need to be the center of everything, to look to the needs of others. And Paul takes it a step further because you know what? That's what Jesus did. 
didn't he? That Jesus himself put aside all the glory of heaven so that he could come and see through your eyes, so that he could step into your shoes, so that he could walk in your place. Jesus humbled himself to know what it's like then to live as one of us, that step of humility. And so David points towards that kind of humility as something that restores our souls, that brings us new life, that turns our life around when God enters our world like that and brings us back to him. And how does David frame that? Well, in Psalm 19, he points that towards Scripture, that it's the Word of God that does that, that Scripture reveals this way, that our souls are revived, that we are restored. We see that in the passage we read today, in verses 7 through 9, all of the ways that David describes the Word of God, that Scripture is something that brings him back to relationship with God, that returns him again to a place where his soul is restored and revived. In verses 10 and 11, he talks about what that means to him, that it's more precious than gold, that it's sweeter than honey. But then, notice what he does there in verses 12 and 13, that he turns that focus then towards humility. By the word of God, then, we are people who recognize our error, recognize our shortcoming, our transgressions, our sins, that God uses the word to, revor, to, re, to revive us, to reboot our lives, to restore us again. The word of God, then, is the thing that steers us towards that humility. By the word of God, we recognize our need for God to save us. By the word of God, then, that seed of faith is planted within our hearts. By the word of God, that seed of faith is nurtured and grown. It's through God's word that we do that. So the question I think I want to leave us with today is is a question that asks this. How can I make room for the word of God to restore my soul this week? Or if you want to use the more modern words I'm putting to it, to reboot my life, to turn my life around, back to God again. How can I make room for the word of God to do that this week? You know, I think maybe sometimes we, those of us who've been Christians for a while, we we get in a habit and we get in a routine and, and our time spent in the Bible becomes, well, maybe a little bit automatic or mundane. I read my devotions because that's just what I do, so I can check that off the list. How do I get to that place then of of being able to see the word of God as as more than just that daily obligation? But rather, I'm going to read the word of God in a way in which I'm reading those words and saying, how can this bring me to a place of finding restoration for my soul? That God uses these words to bring me to that place of humility, where I recognize that God is the one who revives and brings us back again. Find a place to do that this week. 
that the word of God may, may not just be that thing you check off a list, but that those may be words that remind us of our place of humility, to help us see the world through different eyes, to help take our feet in different directions, to walk in others' shoes, to recognize all the ways in which Jesus has done exactly that for us and that God returns us, reboots our lives, restores our souls back to him. May you in this week then find time every day to spend moments in the word of God. And may you in this week allow God to use those words to restore your soul, to reboot your life, so that you may walk into each new day seeing others around you as God sees them, recognizing your opportunity to humble yourself before others just as Christ humbled himself for you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. Lord, we, we confess and we acknowledge today all those times in which we have perhaps placed ourselves at the center of the universe. Lord, may your word then bring us back to a place of recognizing humility, that we may come before you in ways that recognize that you are the one who revives us, who restores our soul, who brings us back to you again. Lord, may you do that in ways then that bring us back to your word, that we may read those words of scripture and know again that you have done that for us so that we may live for you. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.